Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to the Koran podcast. Hello. Um, one of our most popular episodes from the last season of the Koran podcast was titled Koran in the Wild with Nachliel Salavan. Uh, Nachliel is a master educator, archaeologist and tour guide. Um, he took Aryeh and me to uh, Lachish and then on to the Museum of Philistine Culture to explore the unparalleled insight uh, we get from learning Tanakh, quote, out in the field. Um, well, we had lots of requests for another In the Wild episode, uh, and we never want to let you guys down. That's right. We are never going to let you down. And while we recorded with Nachiel in the height of the summer, Baruch Hashem, the uh, winter months here in Israel can be a little inclement. So another outdoor episode wasn't an option for the time being, but luckily we've been looking for a reason to talk to today's guest for some time. And so we seized this opportunity to get ourselves a little tour of another of Israel's unsung museums. That's right. Uh, we met with Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, who is the director of Beit Agnon um, and the editor of the Toby Press's Agnon Library, which is a collection of 15 books uh, of Israel's first Nobel laureate and the only Nobel Prize winner for literature translated into English. Now, while many cities across Israel might have a Shai Agnon street, including Jerusalem, it was really exciting to actually go to Shai Agnon's house, uh, which is now, as you'll hear in the episode, not too far from our new office in uh, the Jerusalem neighborhood of, of Arnona. Uh, and we were just able to see uh, a, a little bit about uh, Agnon's life and an insight into who he was as a person uh, just from walking around his house, um, seeing the parts that have been converted into more of a modern museum, the parts that have been retained as they were for Agnon lived there, and just getting a really deeper insight into who the, Israel's most famous Nobel laureate was. But before we start, uh, we are sponsored again this week by webyeshiva.org. Join Rabbi Chaim Bravinder and other world-class Torah teachers at webyeshiva.org. You can sign up for their free, live, and fully interactive online courses and classes, or apply to the Advanced Halacha Mastery Program for men and for women. Choose from over 20 hours of interactive weekly shurim in Tanakh, Gemara, Halacha, Jewish Thought, and more, taught by their amazing teachers, or access thousands of hours of archived courses. WebYeshiva.org continues the decades-long work by Rabbi Chaim Bravinder as a pioneer of Torah learning for everyone, everywhere. Visit WebYeshiva.org today, log in, and learn. So without further ado, here is our tour of Bet Agnon, Shai Agnon's house with Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs. Welcome to the Shai Agnon house in Jerusalem's Telpiot neighborhood. We're standing in front of his house, which was built in 1931 um, in the Bauhaus style, which was then a very popular modernist kind of architectural design, uh, these kind of straight square uh, lines much more popular actually in, in Tel Aviv than in Jerusalem. The house itself is such an important character in much of Agnon's writings. Agnon was an author, Hebrew literature's greatest author, but one of world literature's great authors who embedded his writing into place, into the place of the old world of Galicia, of Buchach, his hometown uh, back in what today is, is Western Ukraine. Uh, his home here in Jerusalem, his wanderings around in other places, including in Germany and other places here in the in the land of Israel. And the house itself features as a kind of center of, of gravity in in much of his in much of his writings. Uh, visitors, when you come, you'll notice the house is not covered in the typical Jerusalem stone, which is so 
uh, omnipresent throughout the rest of the city because when Agnon moved out to this neighborhood at the end of the 20s, beginning of the 30s, it wasn't part of Jerusalem. The law of the British mandate that required that unified design throughout the city didn't apply out here. This was kind of no man's land. It was cut off from the rest of Jerusalem. And in many of his stories, he describes how difficult it was to get the bus to come out here and have the mail delivered. Obviously, back in those days in, in Jerusalem, nobody had nobody had uh, telephones with which they could easily uh, call back and forth. And that kind of sense of being out here on the on the uh, on the very border uh, close to the Judean Judean desert today it all looks so much different uh, today uh, Jerusalem has expanded and this is a far from the far from the uh, the edge of the world that it that it once was but right here uh, at the entrance to the house visitors would be able to see this large placard uh, with a life-size a life-size photograph of what Agnon looked like uh, in in uh, later in life with a very evocative quote. It's a quote from a story called The Sign, which appears in at least two different places in the Toby Agnon uh, collection. Uh, it's actually Agnon's most direct treatment of the Holocaust, believe it or not, but it's a very interesting Holocaust story. It's a Holocaust story that takes place in Jerusalem. It's a story of how the knowledge that the world he left behind has been completely destroyed, how that news is absorbed here amongst people in Jerusalem. And it contrasts the destruction of European Jewry with the flourishing and flowering and upbuilding of life here in the land of Israel. And the quote says, I built for myself a home and I planted here a tree. In this place that the enemy had tried to banish me, earlier attempts to settle this, this place were met with resistance from certain Arab quarters. In this place, this is where I built my home. I built it opposite the Holy of Holies. From the upstairs window looking due north, he was able to see all the way to the Temple Mount, to the site of the destroyed Jerusalem Temple. And I did this I did this so that the memory of our destroyed precious home should ever be present on my on my heart. And this connection of the house, this modern new house opposite the house, the holy temple, just a kilometer or so away to the north. Uh, and the connection of this house to the houses of old, in the old world, the Altaheim of European Jewry. Um, it's a kind of intersection of the entirety of Jewish history as experienced by him. And in that regard, understanding something about the house and a visit to Agnon's home and his neighborhood really opens up the books and helps you understand what he's doing in this Nobel Prize winning literature in in connecting together all of these disparate aspects of of Jewish life and Jewish living and, and, and Jewish learning and Jewish literature together into the canon of what becomes Agnon's Agnon's collected writings. And of course, as in, you, you say that the house is in the Bau style, much more prevalent in Tel Aviv than it is in Jerusalem. And Agnon himself sort of represented that shift from old world Judaism and living to the modern Israeli state. And when he was living here, you could see onto Harabai, onto the Temple Mount, 
And of course, now if you look due north, all you can see is other houses. Other houses. The neighbors. The neighbors' buildings. So I, I suppose that's sort of a. Um, although it's a shame that to have lost the view. It's a realization of sort of what Agnon was what's about. Been accomplished and what's been built and what's been achieved here in, in Jerusalem and in, in the land of Israel, first the land of Israel and then later the, the state of Israel for sure. And particularly all the years from 1948 to 1967 when the Jordanian border divided him from, from the old city um, and the ability to look out from that upper story window, look out north and see what was on the other side, what was hidden away, what, but yet still remained a focus of his attention. He's sitting in this house, looking out that window at the old city of Jerusalem, sealed off from us for all of those years between the establishment of the state and the Six-Day War, and he's writing stories about it. As he's able to travel there through the power of his imagination and to bring that world of what the Yishuv HaYashan, the old the old uh, Jerusalem neighborhoods and, and life in, in, in those times and those places, you know, to his readers, both then and, and to us mm-hmm. now, even though we have, of course, gratefully uh, uh, reattained our ability to, to travel to those places. But anybody that will read, let's say, Agnon's perhaps most beloved story, Tehillah, uh, which is this portrait of life in the old city uh, in the 19. 19- in the 1920s, what that society was like. He's writing that story here in this house in 1949 and 1950, just just a, a year or so after the fall of the old city. And it's almost written like an elegy, or, a, or we say Tisha B'Av Akina for, for that society and that world and its residents that, that were destroyed. We're standing here in the front garden, essentially of the house, right by the gate. Can you tell us a bit about before Agnon took his first steps into this front garden? What was his journey to getting to this house before that? From from his early years in Europe to getting here, what was his journey? Uh, Agnon, of course, is a pen name. He was born Shmuel Yosef Chachkis in 1887, although he always claimed his birthday was Tisha B'Av 1888. For a variety of reasons, he fabricated all types of details, he, or I would say he midrashicized all types of <laughs> details about his, his life. Uh, he claimed to have been born on August 8th, 1888, the 8th of the 888, this very uh, numerically uh, uh, pleasing date. If you check the calendar today, which is much easier to do, that we carry these things around on, in devices in our pockets, uh, Tisha B'Av did not fall out on August 8th, neither that year nor the year that he was actually born in 1887. He's born in a little town called Butchach. It's not a shtetl. Don't think fiddler on the roof. Don't think, uh, don't think the Russian shtetl. This is a, a, a town. It's not Krakow. It's not Warsaw. It's a proper town. When he's born there, there are about 12,000 residents, about 60% of whom are, are Jewish. He's born into a kind of uh, petit bourgeois family. His father was a, a well-to-do merchant, uh, but his father was also a rav. His father was a Talmud Chacham, a scholar of rabbinic literature who made a living in the fur trade. And uh, Agnon Chachkis, as a young boy, goes off to Cheder, as young boys uh, of that time would do, the one-room Jewish schoolhouse. Uh, but he is removed from Cheder uh, after a brief period because he, there were two ways to get kicked out, because you were a troublemaker or because you were too bright. If you were too bright, Cheder was not for you. Right? It would slow you down. And he was released to study on his own in the Beit Midrash. For a small town, Buchach had an incredibly well-endowed uh, Beit Midrash and library, where he would have been exposed to all types of, of, of literatures. 
that he could have absorbed in Hebrew translations or in Yiddish translations or German was the only other language he could he could uh, really read and speak and he sat and he learned he was recognized as an Ilui as a prodigy um, in his in his Torah study and in all types of other things and he very early on um, displayed a talent as a poet as a writer and even though his family by our standards today we would call them ultra-orthodox it was a different kind of ultra-orthodoxy it was a much more open world it was a much more uh well, it was a very different time and time and place uh, back then in galicia which which again was part of the austro-hungarian empire it was the easternmost reaches of the austro-hungarian empire this wasn't russia this wasn't poland to whatever degree poland still uh, existed and he starts publishing uh, first in Yiddish and then in Hebrew uh, from a very early age. Uh, his first pub- piece of published writing, I think he's 14 years old, in uh, the, the newspapers and journals that were omnipresent in, in Eastern Europe in Hebrew and, and in Yiddish. At the age of 20, he leaves to come on Aliyah as part of the second Aliyah, this wave of immigration uh, in the decade before World War I. And he settles in Jaffa, in the secular new Jaffa. And like most of the other young men of the second Aliyah, he removes his kippah and adopts uh, something of a secular lifestyle. But nevertheless, at this time, he's writing his his early great pieces of his, his novellas and these long short stories that are very profoundly engaged with the religious moment. So much so that the rabbi of Jaffa None other than Rav Cook, Rav Abraham Isaac Akoin Cook, who goes on to become the first chief rabbi of the land of Israel, uh, recognizes him as a very significant player, recognizes the young Chachkis as a very significant player in the Jewish revival. Because Rav Cook understood part of the Jewish revival wasn't just bringing Jewish bodies back to the land of Israel and plowing the land and building buildings and paving roads and draining swamps and all those other things, yes, which were, of course, very important to do in order to achieve what we wanted to do here. But it was a cultural revival. It was a spiritual revival. It was the revival of the, or the, or the reawakening, at least, of the Hebrew language as a language which would be not only the language of prayer and of study, which, of course, always was, but would be the language of new cultural production that part of being a healthy society is that we're going to have our own literature. I mean, Hebrew literature, if we take the classics of Western literature, if we take Anna Karenina and Don Quixote and we translate them to Hebrew, that does not ipso facto make it Hebrew literature. That's, those are, those are, that, that's Russian and Spanish literature in translation. But like those other cultures, we would have to create our own authentic modern literature and our modern literature would have to emanate from the sources of our culture which is the traditional jewish bookshelf and that's what agnon was doing he was writing modern literature drawing on the entirety of the jewish literary tradition going back to tanakh and particularly rabbinic literature chazal the midrash mishnah the the talmud medieval hebrew literature and so on and so forth and taking it all and distilling it and casting it into the mold of modern literature that was his achievement and that's what Rav cook recognized in 1912 agnon left to go to germany presumably for a year or so to kind of round out his life experiences. He, you know, had a kind of provincial upbringing and uh, the land of Israel then was still itself rather backwater. And to become a great 
modern writer, you have to kind of live a little. But World War One breaks out, and he gets stuck in Europe, as, by the way, did Rav Cook, of yeah. course. Um, he he meets the woman who becomes his wife. They have two children. All of these things tend to slow down Aliyahs, as some of our listeners abroad may may uh, may identify with. Um, he meets the great uh, German-Jewish uh, uh, business magnate, Shlomo Zalman Shokin, who is the patron of the Jewish revival in Germany. Uh, and he becomes Agnon's supporter throughout the rest of his life. Uh, Agnon was able to dedicate himself fully to his writing without having to worry about other uh, income, as so many other authors and artists do. In 1924, while living in Germany, Agnon's home was destroyed by fire. Along with it, his library of many thousands of volumes and the manuscripts of two nearly completed works, which uh, I guess he forgot to back up on the cloud or something, and they went up in, in smoke. And he said, this is a sign. It is time to return to the land of Israel. And he and his wife and his two young children do return this time not to Jaffa, but to Jerusalem. And when he returns this time, the Yarmulke he had removed years earlier upon his first arrival has now mysteriously returned. And he resumes a completely traditional Orthodox uh, lifestyle, although remains completely open-minded mm -hmm. and engaged with the world and with culture and things that go on to continue influencing him. In his in his writing, the fire was in 1924. They return. Agnon returns in October 1924. This time to the center of town in Jerusalem, uh, near uh, Ben Yehuda Street. Uh, they're living in a rented apartment. And in 1927, there's a major earthquake in this area. And the building they were living in, while it didn't collapse, it was condemned. So they had to leave. And they used that opportunity to leave the center of town. He found living in the center of town, the hustle and bustle, uh, uh, too much to the writerly life. Uh, he, he, he worked at home in his study, and it just wasn't possible to concentrate in the way that he needed to. So that's when they move out to this neighborhood, to Tel Piot, which then and again, is this kind of cut-off suburb of Jerusalem. They were living not in this home, but in a rented home down the street, a building that no longer exists. And in 1929, during the Hafraot Tarpat, the 1929 Arab uprising, the house was marauded. His wife and children had already left because it was considered a little dangerous. He remained behind and he was working at home when he hears a, a band of, of uh, hooligans breaking into the back door. He's shoving his manuscript pages into his briefcase or suitcase, and he's running out the door. I always imagine if we were to film it as a documentary or something, we would see him running out the back door, sheaves of paper flying around uh, in the wind. Unfortunately, uh, the, the, the Arab hooligans stole everything of value in the home, pulled down all of his bookshelves, turned on all the faucets in the house, and flooded the place, destroying his second, his second library and causing great damage. At that point, they say, "This is we, you know, we need a home of our own," and that's when they build this home, the Beit Agnon, which they move to, move into in in 1931. Uh, and you see, it's built very much, almost like a fortress. Uh, Amos Oz, the great Hebrew author Amos Oz, writes in his memoirs, "A Tale of Love and Darkness." Uh, visits here as a young boy, describes coming to the house, how it's always a little bit shaded in darkness, how the 
main entrance to the house is hidden in the back of the building, almost as if it's trying to uh, be fortified against against visitors. The windows, these kinds of narrow, they almost look like a crusader fortress. These narrow uh, 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 windows with the with the grills and the and the bars in order to protect them, and that's probably a reflection of the realities in which uh, the people who lived here had experienced and uh, and the security concerns of the time here in Jerusalem. So we've now moved inside the house and we're sitting in a, a, a room which is the living area of the house um, to p- people who have, or listeners who have visited, I guess, other places similar from this time will recognize the wooden folded chairs, the small dining table, the uh, Shabbat candles on the side. It's, it's familiar of the era, but there are obviously certain elements here which are very specific to Agnon. Um, so can you tell us a bit about right. what we're seeing? So this is, uh, Agnon called this space uh, the prosdor, which is, of course, a, a, mishnaic, uh, a mishnaic term. But it's the sitting room, it's the living room, it's the dining room, it's the, the all-in-one. Uh, the house itself is, is fairly modest, and it is a reflection of the fact that even people who were somewhat well-to-do in Jerusalem and in the 30s and 40s lived a much simpler life than uh, than we're accustomed uh, to uh, even even today um, it, you know it, it kind of uh, projects the image this was the home of a of a religious Jew we have all of everything you see is uh, is authentic these were all is the, the actual objects chairs and, and uh, utensils and books and candlesticks and lulav box and Sfirah to Omer calendar an old an old radio. There's a little tag that hangs on the wall here uh, that says Shabbat in Agnon's handwriting. There are different versions of the story of what this tag was. Uh, according to one story, Agnon one Friday night was very engrossed in reading something and became distracted and absent-mindedly flicked the, the light off uh, uh, on his on his way out. So then he put this, you know, the way that we might tape up our light switches uh, today. Yeah. It says uh, Shabbat on it. According to another uh, version of the story, uh, when Agnon returned to traditional observance, his wife did not completely uh, get on board with him. This may have been a source of some tension in the marriage, and because not everybody in the home was quite as punctilious as he was, he would do the equivalent of taping up the lights. There were other versions of this tag that uh, on one side it said Shabbat, on the other it said Ya'alev Yavo. So on Rosh Chodesh, uh, in order to remind himself to add that into the prayer and into the benching, he would, uh, he would tack up Ya'alev Yavo, but it's a kind of sign of a, of, a, of a traditional home. On the northern wall of the room is an aerial photograph of Jerusalem's old city as it looked in the 1960s. It was a gift actually from from the central command of the of the army to Agnon, who had spoken at some event uh, given to him in 1963. Uh, this again was at the time when the old city was cut off to us, but it hangs here on the northern wall because here in the southern neighborhoods of Jerusalem, uh, we pray facing north. Uh, so this is the equivalent of, uh, you know, what in some homes would have a Mizrach indicating mm-hmm. the eastern wall where you know, Jews in Europe and in America always face to pray. This was a kind of a talisman to uh, 
to the Beit Machmadenu Echarev, the destroyed uh, city in the north, you see uh, how very different the, the old city, particularly the Jewish quarter, looked then from what we're used to uh, today. And certainly all the surrounding areas, uh, Mamila and uh, all these other parts, uh, it's unrecognizable to us uh, almost today. But this was uh, apparently a very uh, uh, precious item to him because it uh, caused him to be ever mindful of uh, of Jerusalem, of, of old of old Jerusalem. You mentioned off mic um, something interesting about this room that, as you said before, while standing in outside, that Agnon embellished his uh, his life story a bit, saying that he was born on Tisha B'av on the eighth of the eighth eighty eight. Um, but you, as I say, you mentioned off mic. There's something interesting about his Sfirat HaOmer calendar. Uh, this is his, you know, Sfirat HaOmer calendar made of olive wood, like many people still have, where you roll uh, the scroll from day to day to count the, the 49 days of the Omer between Passover and Shavuot. Uh, here at Beit Agnon, we always leave it on Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, which in his uh, telling was a very uh, mystical and mythical uh, date. Many of his stories have a particular tie-in to the day of Lagba Omer, which is, of course, this uh, this uh, this day of uh, embedded with Jewish mysticism and the Kabbalah and the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and, and other things. And in fact, this is true. It was their wedding anniversary. They were married on Lagba Omer in 1920. Uh, Agnon claimed, perhaps mythically, that he arrived on Aliyah the first time on Lagba Omer. It was around Lagba Omer. He's allowed to, to round off for, for symbolic purposes. His first piece of published writing as a youngster uh, was a story for Lagba Omer that was published, you know, at that time or a day or so uh, before. And all types of other, uh, all types of other things uh, happened to him. All, all uh, good things uh, happened to him on Lagba Omer. So it's this very significant date, and that's why we leave that there. But as I said, you see, here's a Havdalah set and Shabbat candles and a, an Etrog box on the table. There are uh, old copies of the Haaretz newspaper. Again, he was the house author of uh, of Haaretz for you know for his whole time living here in in the land of Israel, and was pressured to constantly send them material. It's an interesting story about the relationship between commerce and art. I don't know any author or poet or artist or sculptor that would give up. Uh, the kind of opportunity that was afforded to him by Mr. Shokin to, to really dedicate himself fully to to writing without having to worry about about his income. But I also don't know any that wouldn't in time come to resent it. Because, you know, the muse doesn't come when the newspaper editor calls and says, you have to send us your story. And uh, this led to periods of, of tension uh, between Agnon and his, uh, and his patron, before you mentioned, obviously, Amos Oz coming around with the other people that visited Agnon here, and like with the host people in the house. Yeah, so people would come. We have photographs of, you know, the who's who of, uh, of Jewish life, uh, Israeli life, coming to visit Agnon uh, in the house. There's a, a rather well-known story that uh, sometime in the early 30s, probably shortly after they moved in, Rav Cook came to visit. Uh, again, Agnon and Rav Cook had this particularly close relationship. And uh, visitors to the house will see that we have these kind of uh, rickety wooden folding chairs. Very I remember, yeah, I remember my grandparents having chairs, uh, chairs like this. And there's this one, you know, I guess it looks the most comfortable kind of easy chair in the corner. Rav Cook comes in to visit, and 
and Agnon offers him to sit in the comfy easy chair and the armchair, and Ruf Cook says, no, the, the balabayat, the, the master of the house, should sit there, and I'll sit on the wooden chair. Of course, Agnon wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hear of that, so they had this conversation that afternoon standing up because neither of them was going to sit on the comfortable chair. The next day, Mrs. Agnon is in the center of town. In those days, Jerusalem was a very small place. You could see Rav Cook. Imagine that. You'd just like be walking around, and here's the most significant rabbi of the 20th century just walking down the street, and you get to talk with him. And she says, oh, Rav Cook, it was such an honor. Please come and visit us again. And Rav Cook said, tell Agnon I'll come again when he buys another chair. <laughs> and now we've moved into the next room, uh, which you mentioned before was sort of the, the bedrooms of the house. And now it's this amazing exhibition area. So tell us a bit about, about what, what you have here. Well, here in the exhibition area, we have these different stations with touch screens, which uh, have been put in the last few years uh, for a kind of interactive uh, experience largely for school children. We get many, we get people that visit us from all over the world, of course, but uh, school groups uh, do come through here quite frequently, particularly, you know, in the non-corona uh, time. We hope that'll return to normal sometime soon. Uh, but we also have this fascinating uh, multimedia uh, exhibit, uh, this video installation of uh, seven or eight different video screens that play on a loop scenes from, as, as you can see and as our listeners can imagine, uh, scenes from Agnon's hometown, Buchach. Again, this little Galician town in what today is Western Ukraine. And you really get a sense it looks more or less like you would imagine it would look in the days of his stories written. Some of those stories are written 100 years ago about a time 200 years ago, uh, and not much has changed. I've been to Buchach, I've, I've seen it. Now, of course, you know, people walk around with smartphones and they have automobiles and other things, but if you like close one eye and like look in the right direction, you can really imagine you're back in Agnon's, in Agnon's uh, hometown and, you know, walking around in the 19th century. But here in, in this corner, we have on display, of course, Agnon's Nobel Prize. Agnon won the Nobel in December, 1966. He was and remains the only Hebrew author to win the Nobel in literature. Of course, many Jewish writers have won the Nobel, some for writing very distinctly Jewish literature. But Agnon is the only Hebrew author so, uh, so awarded. Uh, next to the prize medal itself, we have the diploma. When you, when you receive a Nobel, the committee um, commissions a, a diploma recognizing your achievement, and part of it is an original piece of art. Uh, there's a house author uh, that the Nobel Committee uh, keeps on staff, mm -hmm. whose job it is every year to to create a, a painting uh, for the laureate. Uh, I read an interview with the current. Uh, the person that has the, the job these days, and he said it's an extremely pressured job. They announce the recipients in October. Mm -hmm. The ceremony is always on December 10th on Alfred Nobel's yard site. Yeah. Um, so he has only a few weeks to, to execute all of these paintings. You know, some years there are 14, 15, 18 recipients. He says he doesn't know anything about chemistry or medicine or physics, and he knows even less about world literature and certainly about world peace uh, or economics, nothing. And he has to learn something about each, each laureate and their achievement in all of these varied fields and then create a piece of art that represents that. So the artist who did this for Agdon, I think, did something really interesting because the painting itself is a... Um, 
is an interpretation of what Agnon's achievement was. In the center, overlaid on the painting, are the three petaled leaves of the famous medieval bunting map. You can probably imagine what it looks like. If not, a quick uh, trip to the Google machine will show it to you, as well as you'll be able to see this painting that I'm describing. But the three leaves are, are Europe and Asia and Africa with Jerusalem at the center. Mm-hmm. And here at the center of the painting is the shrine of the book at the Israel Museum that houses the Dead Sea Scrolls, which have no connection to Agnon's writings per se, but it had just opened. The, the shrine of the book had just opened in Jerusalem. And it was very much the the iconic symbol of the new of the new Jerusalem, and that's why I imagine it's there. At the top of the painting, behind the wall, is the old city of Jerusalem. But again, this is a half a year before the Six Day War. Uh, it's it's uh, it's still the imaginative Jerusalem. It's still the Jerusalem that's locked away. It's still the Jerusalem that's on the other side of the border, but which is ever present in Agnon's imagination and in his writing. At the bottom of the painting is, uh, well, it looks like a European shtetl. The artist here may have been influenced a little bit by looking at Marc Chagall, but it's obviously meant to be Buchach, Agnon's hometown, with the Stripa River running through the middle and the Black Bridge across it. And off to the side, in a kind of tiny corner of the painting, are smokestacks and barbed wire, which is very obviously a recognition that Agnon, the Hebrew author, living in Jerusalem, what is this, 18 years, 19 years after, to 20 years after the end of the, of the Shoah? The, the, the ashes have barely settled over, over Europe. And the recognition that we're going to give the Nobel Prize in Literature to a Hebrew author writing in this newly reawoken ancient language, it's a prize for the whole Jewish people. It's one thing that the Jewish people walked out of Auschwitz, those that did, of course, and came to the land of Israel and reconstituted themselves as a nation. And put down their enemies and fought a war and established a state and create. It's another thing that they're again being culturally creative Mm -hmm. in the language and in the literature and in the sources from which they sprang. And that was part of what the prize was for. I mean, it's, it's for his writing, of course, but it was also a recognition of where the Jewish people and the state of Israel was at that point, at that at that moment. The fact that it's just six months before, you know, the miraculous Six-Day War makes it all the more, uh, puts it all the more in a certain historical context. And it's continuing what you mentioned before in terms of how, why someone like Rav Cook appreciated what Agnon was doing in terms of that revival of the Jewish people. Absolutely. That was, you know, I think a significant factor in what drew Rav Cook's attention to to Agnon. Of course, there were many other young authors, some whose names we've forgotten or some whose fame has not been as, as enduring. But Agnon's fame was enduring even before he wins the Nobel. Agnon was quite, quite old when he won the Nobel. He was, uh, he was you know, very close to the end of his life. After the Nobel, he did not publish any more, any more books. Uh, the Nobel was December 66. He uh, fell ill about a year before his death in March 1970, um, usually if you look at the average age of Nobel laureates, they 
past the halfway mark, but they, they still have another book or two left inside of them. And Agda was really quite, uh, quite advanced in age at that point. Um, you know, there had been a decades-long campaign to put him forward, uh, to nominate him, to, to try to get attention. He was even sent off, Shokan sent him off in the 50s uh, to take a vacation in Stockholm. Uh, where you know he might come to the attention of some of the people uh, there. Yeah. There was a very concerted effort to have Agnon translated uh, to English, to German, to languages, because after all, a Hebrew author who remains in Hebrew is only going to be known within the, the borders of our country, if he's lucky. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but there was this attempt to, to get him out. The history of, of Agnon translation which you know the Toby Agnon Library is a significant uh, part of is very interesting. Um, which stories were translated to which languages when that was done uh, is a very interesting uh, is a very interesting uh, chapter in in understanding Agnon's appeal in the big wide world. But uh, there's no doubt that those authors that those uh, those judges in Stockholm uh, understood that in giving him the prize, it was there was bigger symbolism at work. And, and do we know what it meant for him? What did it mean for Agnon to, to receive this prize? Uh, mindful of the fact that I'm standing in his home, I will just say that Agnon was not always the most modest character. He had a very healthy sense of his own worth and talent. And it was clearly something that he long aspired to. The prize itself, of course, but uh, but that sense of you know being recognized as a great as a great writer. He he was a, a great wit. He had many very you know clever uh, things that he said at different times. Sometimes putting on this mode of fake modesty. He's interviewed after the prize, uh, and they ask, "Well, what are you going to do now?" You know, uh, Mr. Agnon, that you won the Nobel. So he says, "But uh, he puts on the kind of uh, voice of an old." of an old Jew. He says, what am I going to do now? I mean, my life won't change. I'll still eat my soup with only one spoon. <laughs> uh, but on other occasions, he said, well, now that the whole world has recognized uh, that my books are worth reading, maybe, you know, in, in all of these European languages, so maybe now some people here in Israel will read them in the original Hebrew. <laughs> you know, like a kind of sense that authors are always, always sensitive to, not just to their sales, uh, but to the idea that their works are, their works are, 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 are out there. People are paying attention. People are reading. And yeah. to whatever degree, something like the Nobel Prize can advance that. And there's no doubt that part of his long legacy in these now, uh, uh, you know, 50, uh, 50 some odd years since his passing, and even more since he received the prize, part of the long legacy, you know, has been enhanced. So we've moved upstairs now, we've, we've taken a seat in Agnon's library in his study. Um, I mean, just for the listener, something that I think all bibliophiles can relate to is just the smell in here is, mm -hmm. is amazing. Just thousands and thousands of books. There are over 9,000 volumes here. Wow. Um, and that sort of old book smell, which is comforting. <laughs> 9,000 volumes of things ranging from... Philosophy, literature, you, you name it, the entire gamut of the Jewish bookshelf from Tanakh and commentaries through rabbinic literature. Of course, there's his, 
his uh, shas. He does not have the Korain Talmud, but uh, <laughs> he had some other edition. Uh, the rabbinic literature, medieval, medieval Jewish philosophy, uh, works of uh, halacha, of course, Shelot Chuvot, uh, the Kabbalistic literature, Tanakh and commentaries, Hasidic literature, uh, books of medieval Hebrew poetry, a very large uh, collection of uh, Sidurim and uh, Machzorim uh, and the like. And then in the annex, we have all of world literature uh, that he would have read largely in translation, either translation to translation to uh, Hebrew or Yiddish or, or German. And of course, all of the contemporary Hebrew and Yiddish uh, writers and classics on whom he on whom he uh, drew, and then later authors, younger authors, all of whom would, you know, make their pilgrimage to the house with their new book. We have all of the works of, you know, these these young authors like Amos Oz, Aleph Bet Yehoshua, Samech Yizhar, uh, and even some authors from outside of Israel who came. Dedications in the book. We have many, many hundreds of books uh, that bear dedications from their authors from other poets and authors and scholars and uh, academic works and public figures, presidents, prime ministers, uh, you know, here with those, with those dedications to, to Agnon. So you say, you know, there are so many Hebrew authors, you know, the, the founders of Hebrew literature, whatever it is. What is it about Agnon specifically that drew you to dedicating so much of your time and your academic efforts to studying, translating, editing, Agnon, as opposed to any other? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I'm often asked that, and the answer never comes out exactly the same way twice, and I guess in that way I've been influenced a little bit by, <laughs> by, by Agnon. I became interested in Agnon as a teenager in uh, New Jersey. I grew up in a, um, in a Jewish home in New Jersey that was not particularly Jewishly engaged, let's say. Um, and in high school, I became much more interested in, uh, in Judaism and in observance. And uh, I, my grandmother, who was a very, very uh, learned, well-read, uh, educated woman, but herself was not, uh, was not Jewishly observant. She wasn't Orthodox. Uh, she had been born in the United States. All of my grandparents had been born in the United States. Some of my great-grandparents had been born in the United States, um, which I think is quite unusual for someone of, of my generation. But she was very, um, she was just very well-read. If there had been a Hebrew author in Jerusalem who won the Nobel Prize, she would have taken note. Um, and at some point in, in high school, she bought for me what was then called 21 Stories. It was a collection. When Agnon won the Nobel in 66, uh, Shokin in America, they publishers always do this. When a foreign author wins the Nobel, they rush to get out something in English. So, I mean, frankly, I know that, you know, you know in, 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 in your world, this is unheard of, uh, but yeah, there are publishers that are interested in, in actually capitalizing on profits. <laughs> and uh, they, they took 21 existing translations that had been published here and there in Commentary Magazine or in the Canadian Jewish News. There were all types of places where Agnon stories had been translated and published, and they slapped them between two covers and published it as 21 stories. That volume was later expanded 
to 35 stories and appears in the Toby Agnon series as a book that was lost. Mm -hmm. But then it was this slim little volume, uh, rather uneven, I should say, because they took whatever they had ready. Uh, there's no necessarily thematic unity between the things. A person that only knows Agnon from that collection gets a kind of warped view of, of what he's about. Agnon, of course, wrote in many different genres, from very sh short stories to long novels. You get only one thin slice of him. But anyway, I, she bought this book for me. I, I Frankly, I don't even know if she had read it herself. But she bought it for me because she knew I was becoming interested in, in Jewish things. And, uh, and I was fascinated by it. I was something of a bookish kid. I could not have read Agnon in Hebrew at that point. And even if I could... Uh, you know, all of his allusions to all of his inter intertextual, the intertextual matrix of his writing, which is really almost the central theme of what he's doing, the, the, the kind of commentary on all of these books that we are sitting amongst now um, would have been lost on me because I didn't know those Midrashim or those Gemarot. Or... But nevertheless, I understood he was saying something really interesting about the transition between the old world and the new, between the diaspora and the land of Israel, between, as I said earlier, uh, uh, you know, a world where faith was a given to one where faith was something you had to think about very carefully. And since, in, I guess in my own way, I was thinking about those things at the time, something about what he wrote resonated with me. I had already at that point in my life read some of Franz Kafka's writings and there are certain points of comparison, which Agnon himself uh, hated. He hated being compared to Kafka uh, for reasons we can talk about on some other occasion. Uh, but I recognize the, the, uh, the points of, uh, of, uh, of intersection there. And, um, and I continued to read what was available in translation. Years later, when I came on Aliyah, uh, I, I came uh, in my mid-20s, um, I undertook to start reading him in Hebrew, but I was defeated. My Hebrew, like many Olim Chadashim, my Hebrew was not uh, quite good enough. And I put it aside, then at some point, uh, I came back to it, and I, I realized I was able to do it. And on a kind of, I'll, I'll shorten the story, but at a certain point, I decided I could read all of Agnon. The collected writings of Agnon are 23 volumes, some of them are quite fat volumes. And I had this idea, you, you could read it all. You could do, do not, not exactly like Dafyomi, but you could read all of, all of Agnon and like all great immersion projects. You learn a lot about that thing. You gain a mastery of the subject, but you learn something about yourself. And, and that's what happened. And then, shortening the story even more, I had the opportunity to start at teaching Agnon. And the only way to really master anything is to teach it. I started uh, teaching here at the Agnon House. Uh, and, and then uh, our great publisher, Matthew Miller, at, uh, at Corrine, at Toby Press, had this idea to do the Agnon series um, where we would put out new or revised translations of Agnon's writings, and we would add the kind of annotations or framing or preface or afterward that could help English-speaking readers, um, you know, kind of open the door 
to, to Agnon. When we started, it was going to be five volumes. In the end, we did 15 volumes. Uh, these projects tend to tend to get away from us. And uh, over the course of that multi-year project, um, we we were able to fill in some of, it's fascinating, some of Agnon's most significant works had never been translated to English. And some of the stories that, frankly, nobody even reads today in Hebrew had been available in English for decades. And we were able to kind of very strategically figure out, okay, if we're able to do this many books, what's the agenda? What should we be doing in translating? We were able to turn to a, you know, a team of really talented translators. I did some of the translating myself, but we were working with lots of, lots of people. And I served as the series editor in, in putting that out. Sitting here in Agnon's library, which is almost, almost a sort of a mini Bet Midrash in itself with a huge number of Sfarim, um, in what way is sort of learning Agnon an important part of not just, I guess, a, um, a Jewish knowledge or building one's Jewish knowledge, but also a complement to one's Torah learning as well? Yeah, that's it. It's a really interesting question. In my day job, wearing one of my normal hats, uh, I'm a teacher of Torah, rather conventional uh, teacher of Torah. Um, and that, after all, is the meat and potatoes, the lechem ubasar of, of a Jew's life. Engagement with, with these books, many of which are available in fine editions from the Korean press. <laughs> um, but uh, nevertheless, we really do believe that there are things out there in the world, in the world of culture, in the world of art, in the world of wisdom, which complement a Jew's personality. Greater writers and figures than I have spoken about this. I commend to our listeners uh, the wonderful volume edited by Jacob J. Schechter, which was recently reissued uh, by Magid about Judaism's uh, uh, encounter with other cultures, yeah. uh, which features a very long essay by the late and lamented of Aaron Lichtenstein, Sichron Lebracha, that deals with these questions. Mm -hmm. And other people have spoken about them, and I trust that our, our readers are familiar with them and are, are even accepting of this uh, preposition that... Uh, that there's what to be learned out there in the world. With Agnon, the question is a little more, a little more, uh, both easier and more complicated. What's Agnon doing? Agnon took the entirety of the rabbinic tradition and engaged with it in the form of literature. There are people who misread Agnon at least certain stories. There are certain stories which cannot be mistaken for something you would uh, you know, encounter in the Beit Midrash. But there are stories, actually, there's a particularly famous story of a Hungarian Rav before the Shoah, reading an early story of Agnon's, thinking he's, I don't know exactly what he thought he was reading, but he thought he was kind of reading a, a kind of test case, like an actual, an actual like, Shelot Chuvot, uh, of 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 a case which on which a halachic opinion needed to be rendered. He didn't know that he was reading a work of fiction. 
it's a particularly tragic tale of a fellow who uh, mistaken for dead and his wife uh, remarries mistakenly the rabbonim in the story uh, think that he's dead when in fact he's not and she remarries and she has a child which of course halachically is uh, problematic in the extreme the child's a, a mamzer a halachic bastard so this Hungarian Rav thought he was actually reading an actual an actual case mm-hmm. and uh, writes a critique of the Rabbonim in the story who, who after all did make a mistake right, right? Uh, they made an error but it was an error that was that was, I mean, it's, it's a realistic error. Such an error could have happened. Presumably such errors did happen. Um, because Agnon is engaging with, with our sources, Tanakh, Midrash, Gemara, Chazal, Hasidic literature, and putting it into modern, putting it into the form of modern literature. So one level of interaction with the story, which is not always the most... Uh, productive or fruitful, is the kind of ferreting out all of the sources, right? And there are editions of Agnon, these annotated editions, uh, where, you know, the, the, the annotator will find every hint to every pasuk and every hint to every rashi and every hint. So that's a form of scholarship which, you know, which, which has its merits, but doesn't always help us understand the literary text. It's a work of literature. Agnon's first impulse as an author was always an aesthetic one to produce a piece of literature. Mm-hmm. He wasn't writing the Mora Nevuchim. He wasn't writing the Mesilat Yesharim. That was not his agenda or his intention. Nevertheless, because he is engaged with all of these sources, it forms a kind of, I'll say, the, the listeners can't see me making the air quotes, it's a kind of midrash on the collected wisdom of the Jewish people. So I was, I was going to ask, it is sort of part of the secret to Agnon's endurance that he is, a, he's, he's drawing on like this Midrashic tradition. As in the same right. way that Midrash is like, we, we did an episode about this um, in our last season about sort of Midrashim sneaking their way into our understanding of, or our, our perception of the Peshat, that we have these com- confusions right. of things that what's aren't. What's the Peshat and what's the Drash. Right, exactly. And, I feel like what you're saying here is that like Agnon, whether on purpose or by accident, has done the same thing, that he's able to confuse a Rav in Hungary um, about something that may, that may or may not have actually happened. But that sort of, we have this innate relationship perhaps with Midrashim and that's sort of what Agnon's playing with. Right. And that's why he, he speaks right. to us. Right. Well, that's why I say it's the, it's the kind of Midrashic imagination at work. In other words, he's not writing Midrash with a capital M in the sense that it's a kind of exegesis of the biblical text or, or, you know, back onto the rabbinic text, but it's midrashic in the sense of that kind of the imaginative need to fill the Jewish imaginative need to fill the literary void, um, to read between the lines, to read one text engaged through another text. That's what I mean by air quotes, midrashic. And in that regard, it's, it's a very engaging type of literature particularly for those of us who do have two feet in the world of the Beit Midrash, and it's a way to open up our thinking about these ideas and these texts and these values. And literature is a, is a, is a wonderful lens into that, specifically because it's not the Mora Nevuchim or the Mesilat Yesharim. Literature shows things not as they ought to be, but 
as they often messily and tragically are. It's Jewish life when it comes off the rails. And not always because, you know, the Nazis have walked in, but because we are often our own worst enemies. We are often, you know, the cause of our own tragic downfall through our hubris, through our arrogance, through our own internal, you know, hatred and, and, and internecine fighting a Jew amongst Jew because our, our values as, as uh, aspirations and our values and implementation are often at distance from each other. Uh, he, he often will, for example, portray sometimes in a tragic light, sometimes in a satiric light, He's a great humorist, of course. The, the gaps between the Jewish sense of tzedakah, of charity as a value, and how it was you know, often imperfectly implemented, and how social class dynamics you know, were not usually playing out in favor of the poor and downtrodden, mm -hmm. despite all of the, the well-meaning... Uh, assertions uh, to, to the contrary. Now, hopefully many of our listeners this episode have already started reading volumes from the Toby Press Agnon Library. But if there are any that haven't yet uh, started their journey and have listened to this episode or are inspired, what would you say is the first place they should yeah. start? It's also a question that, that I get a lot, and a lot <laughs> has to do with, with a person's own interests. Like I said, Agnon wrote in a whole variety of genres, very, very short story to long, sometimes too long uh, novels. Um, I think that his greatest form is the novella, um, a story which is long enough to have a, enough meat and complexity and multiple characters. Uh, and in that form, he actually excelled uh, the most in the kind of intertextual uh, workings. Um, so we have one volume in the series uh called uh, Two Scholars Who Were in Our Town and Other Novellas. It's a collection of four, four long stories or four, you know, uh, four novellas, um, which are representative of different periods. They're, they're organized in the volume chronologically, not chronologically when they were published, but chronologically when they would have happened in the historical chain. Uh, some take place in the land of Israel, some take place in the old world of Buchach, and some straddle the two. So I think those four stories, which are among his best. Um, they include uh, the story Tehillah, which is perhaps his most beloved. Those are really uh, very, very good stories. And, you know, since it's not the commitment of a 700-page novel, it might let the reader get their feet wet. If somebody wants to read something longer, I recommend his novel in English called A Simple Story uh, in our series uh, by the wonderful translator Hillel Halkin. Um, it's a kind of Judaized Romeo and Juliet. In other words, Agnon is taking the old trope of star-crossed love and the effects that that has on uh, on the young on the young figures, uh, but he sets it in Buchach around 1900, uh, and it's a world Buchach itself which is going through this transition. You know, long before the Shoah the world of Eastern Europe was coming into modernity. It was bumping up against it willy-nilly here and there. And it's, yeah. you know, transition-like questions of arranged marriage versus marriage for love. And what that has to do, you know, in the in the generational struggle, it's a, it's a wonderful, 
wonderful novel, uh, Sipur Pashut, a simple, a simple story um, in Halkin's translation. I think those are two good places to start. Uh, <laughs> this might be a bit of a leading question. Um, in fact, I think it is. The, how much do you think you know, Agdon's writing and, and certainly winning the Nobel, how much did that sort of open up the world for other Jewish writers and authors to write about the Jewish experience? Um, as in, Agdon, of course, was, was there sort of creating Hebrew literature, um, but how much do you think that has opened the world to, to modern writers writing about, from a Jewish point of view, either for for Jewish people or for the rest of the world? I can talk about this, but it's a whole separate episode. <laughs> it's It would be hard to do in three sentences. Can we have the... the I'll do my the, best, the but you can decide it, to cut it or not. Unless that means we have to invite you back, which right. would be our absolute pleasure. Right. There's no doubt that, uh, that a Jewish author uh, winning a Nobel, to say nothing of a Hebrew author uh, sitting in Jerusalem winning the Nobel, drew attention to... to to Jewish literature. Of course, there were many other great Jewish authors, uh, perhaps most distinctly following Agnon, Saul Bellow, uh, a very distinctly Jewish author, American Jewish, Canadian American Jewish author, uh, Isaac Bashev, a singer for writing in, in Yiddish, wins, wins the Nobel, Philip Roth, perennially on the, on the Nobel shortlist, although he never got it, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Here in Israel, the, the betting market, you know, is always trying to shortlist for many years. Amos Oz was always considered a uh, favorite. Uh, today they talk about David Grossman, David Grossman, uh, you know, other, other Hebrew authors. There's no doubt that Hebrew literature today is in a much different place than it was in the, in the 1960s. Um, but it's still quite difficult, I think. In other words, the top draw authors uh, like some that I mentioned, uh, Aleph Bet Yehoshua, David Grossman, Mayor Shalev, Oz, who's now passed away, uh, who succeed in being translated, who succeed in reaching, uh, you know, a, a market in in other languages, who receive prizes, you know, even if they're not the Nobel uh, in in Europe and in the United States. So they are major players on the on the stage of world literature and translation. It's important to remember the stage of world literature and translation, and by translation we mean translation to English in terms of the market of readers in the world, is a rather small market. Right. Um, but there's no doubt that attention to Agnon brought attention to the rest of the rest of of uh, of Hebrew literature, but those authors have made it on their own, and of course they're all doing things very different than what Agnon was doing. Hebrew literature, of course, had to mature and to move on to its next stages. Those authors who I mentioned, they all, I should add to that list, Aaron Appelfeld, um, who also uh, succeeded uh, in, in, in English. I think Appelfeld probably authored more books than any of the others, um, and they were all translated, or almost all uh, translated and available. He also passed away just a couple of years ago. They were all of them influenced by Agnon, and they were all of them struggling against that influence. In A Tale of Love and Darkness, Oz tells a story of coming and standing in this room, in Agnon's library. He's a young, first he's a boy, later he's a very young man. He's coming with his, with his, uh, First fruits, uh, you know, his, we have two of his, his two first books we have here in the collection. But Oz describes the 
sometimes paralyzing influence of Agnon. He describes the shadow, this light, this kind of bare light hanging from a string from the room, casting shadows in many directions. He says that's what he learned from Agnon, to cast shadows in many directions, meaning as an author you have to be pointing in different directions. You have to write in this kind of multi-layered way where everything means more than thing itself, where you're, you're kind of revealing and concealing to your reader at the same time. But he also says that he had to find his own voice. So obviously it was a huge undertaking and a really important um, project to create the Toby Press's Agnon series and um, to translate those classic works into English. But w what does it mean to read Agnon in English when he is so identified as a Hebrew author? Yeah, I get the question a lot from Israelis, you know, naturally chauvinistic uh, Israelis, uh, you know, say, how could you possibly read Echefshar? How could you possibly translate Agnon? How could you read Agnon in translation? You miss everything. Of course, you know, if we were in Moscow, you'd hear the same thing about Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And if we were in Spain, you'd hear the same thing about Cervantes, etc., etc. Each each culture and its own classic, really. How could you read Shakespeare in Italian? Mm -hmm. I mean, how would it be possible? Um, okay, so that's natural. And there's no doubt that there are things that are lost in translation. Nevertheless, all of those judges in Stockholm who gave him the Nobel Prize. And of course, there are lots of different considerations that go into who gets the Nobel Prize, but presumably the artistic merits are not uh, ignored. They all read him in translation. Mm -hmm. um, and even in translation, I read Agnon in translation. I became enchanted with him in translation. I understood he was saying something really important to me as a youngster in translation. Um, and even if a lot of the intertextuality is lost. And even if you don't catch all, oh, he's saying something here about Megillah and Esther. And I understand that because of the use of the language here, which might be lost in translation. Or he's saying something about that Gemara, right? And and I should understand what he's saying here, this, this kind of more modern setting. He's playing out a theme that exists in that Agadah in the Gemara. But even if you don't catch any of that, there's still something really profound going on. After all, we read Shakespeare today, and you know Shakespeare is riddled with references, pop culture references of his day, mm -hmm. you know, to things that were going on in in uh, uh, you know on the streets of London, which, which which we don't we don't know what he's talking about, but yet we still understand there's something really profound going on in King Lear, yeah. and that's true when you read Agnon in translation. The question with Agnon, tragically, is not how can you read him in translation, but for so many Hebrew speakers today who are at remove from those sources. Um, how do they read Agnon in the original Hebrew? So I think that our edition of Agnon in English, um, where we do have the annotations and we are pointing things out, many of our readers, certainly readers, you know, Anglo readers of, of, of Agnon who are fluent in the Jewish sources, but for whatever reason won't or can't read modern Hebrew literature, even though they can engage with the Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch, so even in translation, they're going to catch a lot of those references because that's part of their, you know, what they're carrying around in their uh, in their backpacks. Yeah. Um, and they'll be able to do that in translation in ways that tragically some Israeli readers today in Hebrew won't be able to do because they don't they don't catch those references. But even even without that, in any language, 
there's still something profound here. It's still works of great beauty and meaning and emotion and 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 the characters. Um, that's the the dedication that Oz writes to to uh, Agnon in in one of these early in his first in his first novel. He uh, he inscribes it to, to Agnon. It's 1966. The same year Agnon wins the shortly before Agnon wins the Nobel, and he brings. Uh, Brings this this novel and he inscribes it Lashay Agnon Asher Natanli et Tirtzamin Sved Blumanacht Sved Herschel Sved Yitzchak, who gave me all of these great characters, these giant figures of Hebrew literature, Shayu Imi Bashots Shel Etziv, who were with me in my moments of sorrow. And if you know something about Amos Oz's biography from having read A Tale of Love and Darkness, you know what he means about his his moments of sorrow and the power of literature. To, to be there with us and to, and to lift us up and to prod us and to poke us and to get us to think and to get us to feel, you know, those are, those are valuable experiences that we can have through the pages of, of books. They make us richer people. They make us more interesting people. Uh, in that regard, it, it answers your question of like, what's the religious value of reading this literature? It's a religious value to be a more interesting person. It's a religious value to be a deeper person. And it's a human value to be those things. And Agnon's not the only one who can do that. Um, but for those of us that are engaged in this world of Jewish life and literature and learning, he's really an extremely powerful crux that can, that can get us into that beyond the actual aesthetic pleasure of just reading reading books so i think our time is is now at an end um we want to thank you so much for giving us thank you i i want to sit here with a cup of tea and just talk for the rest of the day um but i feel we may have overstayed our welcome um to the listeners if you haven't read any agnon run no, run there's no excuse there's no excuse anymore uh you you should if you find yourself in jerusalem with a couple of hours to spare come and visit, come the, agnon and visit the agnon house right by the american embassy um very very local very accessible now as it wasn't Right. when Agnon was living here. Um, but thank you again so much, Rabbi Sachs, for, for giving us your time, uh, for giving us a tour, both physically and intellectually, uh, of the world in which uh, Agnon inhabited. Um, I think we'd be remiss without mentioning perhaps the most important volume in this room of the more than 9,000, which is the, the first edition, Koran Tanakh. First edition, Koran Tanakh, um, right there on the shelf. Has owned and we, we hope studied um, yeah, it looks like it's it looks like it's uh, <laughs> been thumbed through 1963 edition exactly uh so that that's sitting on the desk here um we hope to have you back on the podcast one day soon thank you thank you so much that's all we have time for this episode uh we had a really fascinating time um walking around bet agnon shy agnon's house with rabbi jeffrey Sachs and having a chance to sit in agnon's library and hear a bit more about agnon and how he shapes um, Jewish literature and not only liter um, classical literature but also Torah learning as well and uh, we're really appreciative for, to Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs for his time uh, that he took with us for this episode Yes and we uh, we mentioned at the end uh, Agnon's own copy of the Koran Tanakh uh, published in 1962, 60 years ago this year. Um, there's a little story about that Tanakh which we have shared on our social media so head over there to take a look at Karen Publishers. Um, 
If you want to be in touch with us, you can reach us uh, on social media at Karen Publishers or via email podcast at karenpub.com. And you can get 10% off the entire Toby Press Agnon Library um, and all other titles exclusively at www.corinpub.com with code podcast at checkout. Finally, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Corin podcast wherever you're listening and make sure to share it with at least two friends. Uh, we've started the season with some fantastic episodes and we mean to continue uh, in the same spirit. So please do make sure to spread the word. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Corin Podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.